In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind and in the news with Bernstein's research analysts who are in the know. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this and every episode. I am Diana Wood from Bernstein's Boston office, and this episode features our senior European logistics and transportations analyst, Alex Irving, based in London. Today, Alex will take us through a wide-ranging discussion of global trade, from the birth of trade to the dawn of globalization, and then on to containerization and what we are seeing today. He will touch on the China Plus One strategy and take a look at the future of supply chain structures. So hello, Alex. Thank you for being here. Hey, Di. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So let's start at the beginning of the beginning. I believe you are from just outside of Port City in Northwest England. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Just near Liverpool. I'm from a town called Birkenhead, which was the shipbuilding site. Liverpool was the dock. I've got shipbuilders and boilermakers and all sorts of things back in the family tree, if you go back a couple of generations. So that's what I was thinking. And I think that puts you in a unique position to talk about the history of global trade and the birth of shipping and transportation as we know it. So with that, why don't you share some insights? Sure. So if you want to think about when we first realized we could get goods from A to B by water rather than by land. And that started off with the ancient Egyptians, yes, principally an agrarian society. Sure, trade wasn't the be-all and end-all of the ancient Egyptian economy, but you'd find them moving huge slabs of granite by barge on the Nile. It's the first example of when we did waterborne trade. They would move things like animal skins or incense. You'd go around the Horn of Africa to what's now Somalia. You started to move goods by water. We realized there was some value to it, but it was peripheral to the overall economy. And then there's a whole sequence of societies that brought trade one step further. Go about 3,000 years ago, you had the ancient Phoenicians. They were the first maritime society, the first society founded on, on trade by boats. Partly that was just because the trees were beautiful. You've got these beautiful, long, straight cedar trees in, in ancient Greece. They started to spread their culture, spread their goods, spread their ideas, base their economy on maritime trade. Talk about we have a phonetic alphabet today. That came from the Phoenicians because they were so dominant in the Mediterranean at the time. You'd sail your goods all the way around. Ancient Rome is the next big leap forward in, in the maritime society or in, in aquatic trade. You've got a metropolis of a million people. You can't just feed that with farms on the outskirts. You need to think about different ways of arranging society, of coordinating society. You had several ships a day with grain, with wine, with olive oil, supplying that city, making it the administrative and government center of the Roman Empire, while the farms are in in France, in Spain, in Germany, in what are now the Balkans, in Northern Africa, we're all about providing the agricultural goods. So with every kind of thousand years or so, you got incremental levels or incremental levels of progress towards what we'd sort of begin to recognize today as a more normal trade architecture. Okay. That's very interesting. But sort of each had their unique good that they were sort of you know, circulating amongst themselves, but it was getting it out to the rest of the world. Which leads me to my next question is, what is the first example, as you know, of globalization, like pure globalization? Yeah. So this is one of the wonderful kind of pub quiz trivia questions, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'll die on this hill. It's walrus tusks. Wow. I will die on that hill. And this is another thousand years on from the Romans. We're talking about the Vikings here. Yeah. 
We talked about the Phoenicians a moment ago. Beautiful, long, straight cedar trees, great for shipbuilding. Vikings, beautiful, long, straight pine trees, great for shipbuilding. There's a reason why Vikings were so successful on the water, and part of that just had to do with the natural resources in the economy. Now, with Vikings, they're inherently one of the most global societies, I think, through history, at least at that time. The first people to reach four continents, you tend to think about Vikings as being very Nordic. And yeah, sure, Nordics were home, but came to North America. You had Vikings as far as Africa, as far as what's now Afghanistan, kind of sailing down the rivers. They ended up further than you think. If you go to the mosque in Istanbul, I think it's the Blue Mosque, the Hagia Sophia, Mm -hmm. there's a Viking that carved his name into the mosque some thousand years ago. But tangential. One of the prized items in Viking society was a walrus tusk. It was ornamental. It was beautiful. You could carve out of it. It was a highly valuable object. But, and there were walruses in Scandinavia, sure. But what happened was that after the Vikings settled Greenland, all the walrus tusks started coming from there. Now, maybe there were more walruses, maybe they were easier to catch, whatever it happened to be, but you're exploiting comparative advantage, I'd say, for the first time in history. A good you could produce in your home region was now insufficient quantity, was now being produced somewhere else because it was better to do it there. It was more affordable. There was some arbitrage opportunity while the people back home could be getting on with whatever other college industry they were involved in. And you started to see that exploitation of production cost arbitrage about a thousand years ago with the walrus tusk. That's fascinating. You know, how did we move from where we were a thousand years ago through modern trade and into sort of the advent of containerization? Yeah. And it's kind of funny because if you're in the first part of the 20th century, containerization started in the 1950s. But if you're the first part of the 20th century, trade was still really cumbersome. It was not a great idea to source your goods from far away if you could avoid it. Often the cost of moving goods could be some 50% of the value of the product. And you were moving things, what's usually called break bulk, as in you kind of shove everything in the boat together. You got the fruit next to the machinery, next to the cotton or whatever else you're transporting. And you're absolutely right. Theft was a problem. Productivity was a problem. You always had to get carpenters to make little bulkheads so that you could store the goods safely on the ship. Dock workers were known for helping themselves to goods. So much so that there was an old joke in the port of New Jersey around the 1920s. Dockers wages were $20 a day and all the whiskey you'd carry home. <laughs> Their wives were in on it, right? They'd sew the little pockets into the jackets, perfect for taking a bottle of whiskey back with you. This was what trade was like. So you tend to want to source goods from, from nearby. Even outside of theft, it was just slow and cumbersome to load and, and unload ships. And this was a known problem. Now, there was a trucking entrepreneur in the 1950s. His name was Malcolm McLean. Scottish heritage, I think it was from one of the Carolinas, I forget which one. And he had a trucking company. He used to go to the ports and he would see how long it took to take everything off the truck and put it on the boat and back again. And he sort of sat there and said, couldn't we just put the trailer on the boat? <laughs> and that was the, the spark that made him eventually develop the world's first shipping container. Sailed along the East Coast of the US sometime in the 1950s, was fiercely resisted by the existing shipping lines. It was fiercely resisted by unions because, of course, it's far more efficient to load and offload. And even by 10 years from its initial voyage in 1958, even 10 years on, it was still not widely accepted that containerization was a good thing for moving goods. That changed in the late 60s, early 70s in the Vietnam War. The U.S. military was having a very, very hard time keeping their troops supplied. 
everything they needed, right? Food, ammunition, clothes, all the rest of it, was having a very, very hard time getting the goods there efficiently and maintaining military operation. Military logistics is hard. And so Malcolm McLean and his and his company, Sea Land Service, said, hey, give us a shot at this. Let us try. See what you can do. Because frankly, you, something's got to change. But okay, we'll give it a go. And it worked beautifully. And from there on, it was just a big wave of moving as much as we possibly could with containerized freight by the ocean. Productivity was higher. Damage was lower. Theft was almost impossible. That's fascinating. I love how you say he just had a spark and he's like, why don't we do it this way? It's obvious when you think about it, when you when you kind of look at it with hindsight, you go, well, why wouldn't we have done that in the first place? But it takes somebody to actually point out that that inefficiency. Yeah, It's so true. So we sort of worked for thousands of years or just over time in terms of how to move goods across land, across sea. Eventually we did it in the air, so via air channels. So we spent thousands of years doing this and sort of bringing the world a little smaller and closer together through globalization. And now we're sitting today, and one of the buzzwords that we hear a lot about is deglobalization. So the opposite of everything that we seem to have worked so hard for up into this time. So is deglobalization real? And how worried should forwarders and freight forwarders, people that are moving these goods around, be about deglobalization? I think deglobalization is a very, very strong word. There's always going to be a comparative advantage in producing something because the opportunity cost of not producing something else. But I think what we are seeing more and more of is a changing pattern in the way supply chains are managed and organized. That we're seeing other countries produce goods that suit their needs. China's working age population is declining. Wages are higher. Doesn't make sense to make textiles in China anymore, which are a low value add, labor intensive product. So we're making them elsewhere. And we're starting to see those changing patterns of trade emerging. So Alex, I'm glad you brought that up because you actually have a great chart in your black book that goes through the existing architecture of supply chains. And I know this isn't in front of viewers right now, but could you kind of walk them through those different sort of archetypes and as you think about supply chains, where they have been and where you see them in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So the the existing paradigm we've been used to is basically being one founded on economies of scale, produce as much in one place as you can, usually China, and export that to the world because transportation was cheap and supply chains behaved. You hear a lot about reshoring. Now, reshoring is basically produce next to the consumer. So if your consumer is in the United States, produce in the United States. If your consumer is in the EU, produce in the EU. It's often going to be more expensive to do that and can make sense under a couple of conditions. Maybe you just want to get the good to the consumer really, really, really fast. And that's all that matters. So produce it close. And maybe, and we're seeing more of this today, there are incentives to do so. So look at where we're seeing growth in reassuring at the moment. It's in industries where subsidies are making that happen. Think battery EVs. Think the, think the U.S. Chips Act that's being built in in the southwestern United States as a consequence of deliberate public policy. So that's where you're more likely to see reshoring, but is reshoring a major driver for the restructuring of trade? I doubt it. Something else is going to move elsewhere. What I think we're more likely to see is a bit of regionalization, so producing in multiple regions for other regions. I'm not going to knock down my existing factory in China. That's be ridiculously expensive, but 
maybe when it comes time to expand production, I don't just go to that factory. Maybe I think, hey, there's a site in Brazil that might work. There's a site in Turkey that might work. It's decent levels of production costs, decent infrastructure, whatever I need in order to make that work for my product. And I start spreading production out around the world to ultimately build supply chain resilience. Now, supply chain resilience, I'm going to pick one buzzword that matters the most for the future direction of supply chains. We'll probably visit this a couple of times over the course of the conversation. It is supply chain resilience, that notion that a supply chain doesn't just exist to be cost minimized, but exists to be risk managed. It's just something I feel like that's constantly been in the background for folks, but was brought obviously very quickly to the forefront during the pandemic. And I think that seemed to have been a massive catalyst for everything that you just discussed. But what kind of impact did the pandemic really have on the companies you look after within logistics specifically? And how do you see sort of the new paradigm going forward as a result of that? Was that really what triggered sort of all of this that you're discussing? Yeah, absolutely was. So the first impact is that the CEO started to care about the supply chain. This was something that was always a do it cheaper kind of a function. Reports into the COO, save me money on transportation so I can have a higher profit margin or price more aggressively and try and take market share. And that was that was the modus operandi of supply chain management. Then the pandemic happened. We had an excess of demand for transportation capacity and a deficit of supply as people got sick or in the case of air cargo, planes were on the ground. So we couldn't move everything that people wanted. That meant some businesses just simply could not operate their businesses. It was not possible any longer because they were being priced out of the market. So customers were upset, orders were going unfulfilled, sales were being disrupted. And the CEO and the board went, hang on, we've been so focused on minimizing the explicit cost of transportation that we've neglected the implicit costs of how do we make sure we can continue to operate this business when things go wrong. So think about it a little bit harder, spend a little bit more money. Don't go crazy, but spend a little bit more money on this if we can make sure we're defended against the next disruption, because if anything, the world is getting more volatile, more complex, more challenging. We need to make sure that we're not the ones exposed the next time a disruption happens. Now, how is that translating into what companies are doing? We're already seeing it in the data. And the big one of all the different kinds of shoring, niche, nearshoring, reshoring, friendshoring, so producing with your allies, China plus one. China plus one is the one that I really point to here, where instead of making everything in China, we make it in China and somewhere else, or we get it from somewhere else. If you take a look at some of the data, so back in the late 2010s, the China was about 30% of the United States manufactured goods imports. It's now in the mid to low 20s. And who's taking that market share? It is not Mexico. It's not the nearshoring. It's other Asian economies, kind of India, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, those sorts of countries. They're maybe on slightly better political terms with the United States that provide some diversification in your source of imports and are really growing their exports to the US and is ultimately a consequence of companies risk managing their supply chain, reducing their direct, underlying direct trade links with China. 
It's so crazy to think about, but, you know, the made in China that you see always, there was real concentration risk with China that was completely amplified during the pandemic. And now we're in a state where people, they had to call out a specific strategy, China plus one, like not any other player, global player, it was China and how they're diversifying away. But in the context of that, I mean, China is diversifying its own exports, I believe. But I mean, do you think China will go away as a manufacturing powerhouse or as a player in this world? Or will it still exist in some large scale? I mean, how do you feel about that in the future? Will it just be made in Bangladesh forever? Everything? Is China still involved? I think China is still the best place in the world to make something. As a general principle, it's still the best place in the world because it combines three things that other countries do not. Generally speaking, first of all, there's, there's a big labor force, fine, we know that. But generally speaking, there's two dimensions on which I think about this. How good is your infrastructure and how high are your wages? This is really generalized, but if you look at China, their infrastructure, because they spent decades of fixed asset investment and building rails, automating ports and building highways and everything, everything, everything else investment-driven economy has resulted in really, really good infrastructure, rich world quality infrastructure in a middle-income country. There is no country on earth that looks like China does with that level of infrastructure quality for that level of income. So replacing China, no. What I think you will see, and we are seeing, never mind, because China's exports have continued to grow. You say, hang on a minute. So we're not exporting as much to the US, which is the world's biggest importer, um, one of the two giant economies of the world. But China's exports are growing. Yeah, they're going elsewhere. They're going to the Belt and Road countries, right? So China's new friends, essentially. But I think where they're also going is they're becoming imports to other countries that sort of occupy a middle ground. India is a great example, right? Big enough, world's number one population, top five economy, maybe, mm -hmm. big enough that it decide, defines its own trade policy. But you'll often have Chinese goods that will go into India, will be manufactured and transformed into something else, and then export to the United States. That's why earlier on we said you know, direct links with China are maybe, maybe reducing from the United States, but it's, it's becoming just further upstream in the supply chain. China's going to still be the best place to make a lot of stuff because it combines advantages that other economies simply don't have in convergence. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you bring up India, but India as a country, do you feel that they will never take over as the next massive player in this? I mean, do you feel at some point in the future they can, or is the infrastructure and organization just not there yet? Or could they ever be a, a major player to oust China? We require a lot more infrastructure investment, higher quality ports, higher quality highways, that sort of thing in order to make it a more attractive location for manufacturing. You see it in a couple of high-profile cases. Right? So I, so Apple is making the iPhone not just in China, but in India these days. That's probably the most well-known example. Um, the Jews manufacturing industry is growing. But in order to be, because it's not just it's cheap to make it there, but can we move it out of the place where it's being made and export it to the markets where the consumers are? And for that to be reality for India, I think it just requires a great deal of investment in infrastructure, which China has been decades in the making. 
So when we take everything that we've discussed thus far into account and sort of the history of trade and transportation and logistics and where we are now from globalization to deglobalization, will all of this be a good or bad thing for logistics companies, for those players in the space that are moving these goods around? Is this a positive? Is this a negative? I mean, how do you think about this new paradigm in the context of those companies? You tell me which logistics business you're in, I'll tell you this is a good thing for you or a bad thing for you. So logistics combines lots of different business models. A container shipping line does something different from a freight forwarder, does something different from an express integrator. And so for a freight forwarder, I'll start there because more of my coverage focuses on freight forwarding. Freight forwarders are not businesses that everybody has direct experience of, but these are companies that manage supply chains. They don't own the planes. They don't own the ships. They're people businesses. They're service businesses. And they manage supply chains. They exist to solve your supply chain problems. Now, as we're moving towards new supply chain structures, China plus one, building supply chain resilience, that introduces supply chain complexity. Got more sorts of trade flows, more borders to cross, more documentation to file, more handovers between different parties, the warehouse, the truck, the port, the ship, and more points at which things can go wrong. And when things go wrong, the forwarder sorts it out. The more that goes wrong, the more complex your supply chain, the more the forwarder does, and the more the forwarder earns. So for freight forwarding, the more complexity, the more building supply chain resilience, the better for unit economics. We do think that's a structurally more profitable industry than it was pre-pandemic. I remember one of your pieces, you said a freight forwarder, you, it's essentially just a, a person with an email address that can coordinate things from far, from a distance far away. So the real money then in forwarding is made from sort of that logistics value add. And how has that kind of changed over time? Yeah, absolutely. Genesis of a freight forwarder, the reason the freight forwarder existed in the first place was to be a market maker in capacity. You know who the shipping lines are and when their boats go and what time if there's any space on the boats. And you've got a whole bunch of customers with freight that needs to get on a boat. And that was the genesis of a freight forwarder, but that is really a hygiene factor. That's table stakes. You don't make any money for just broken capacity these days. It's extremely, extremely low margin business. You make your money as you save from the value-added services on top, right? Maybe you can't fill a container. Right? You're a family-owned business and you don't have enough goods to fill a full container. Am I going to ship half a container of air? No, right? I want to consolidate. Or the most efficient thing is to consolidate that with half a container from somebody else, pack it all together, use that space more efficiently. That's, a, some, that's something a freight forwarder can do. Find those customers, bring them together. Oh, you're both going to California. Great. Off you go in the same container and deconsolidate on the other end. It's a value-adding service. It's a more profitable service. Maybe you're moving some goods that require special handling. Think pharmaceuticals. You've got a, a pallet of vaccines. They need to be temperature controlled between two and eight degrees Celsius. We need to make sure they remain at that temperature throughout the entire journey or they're completely spoiled. That means keeping them at that temperature and monitoring them that they're at that temperature because there's no way of taking off the plane at the end and going, yeah, they look fine. Like, you don't know. So the more work the forwarder has to do, the more complex the shipment, the more money you can earn. Dangerous goods, another one. Highly controlled goods, I think weaponry, for example. Anything anything like that that's more simple than moving widgets requires more time from the freight forwarder, is more complex, and generates higher levels of earnings per shipment. 
So this is a little bit of a tangent, but as you're talking about moving things back and forth and, you know, I, I think about inventory levels and I know that in the pandemic, we had these massive inventory issues where, you know, not having enough, then the next year having too much. What do you think about the current levels of inventory and the correction that's taking place? And can you explain to listeners what you see that's going on in terms of inventory levels right now? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's let's take a little story just to contextualize it. So pandemic started, we all got shut up in home, couldn't eat in restaurants, couldn't go to be entertained at the cinema or the theater or anything like that, um, couldn't go on holiday. So we bought stuff. We were also stuck at our house. Well, this kitchen needs redoing or my desk is too small. Or I need a monitor. Or my kids need to be homeschooled. Everything, everything, everything else. So we needed more stuff. And then we talked earlier about how demand spikes. That was demand spiking. We spent the first year and a half of the pandemic buying stuff, maybe two years. And then come spring 2022, when we emerged from the Shanghai lockdowns, the freight didn't snap back. And it turned out by then we'd actually got enough stuff. The orders were still coming across the ocean, but nobody was buying it anymore. And then we had excess inventories. We saw the big retailers, the big box retailers saying, we've got too much stuff now and we need to take our inventories down. And that meant that we went through a huge destocking cycle, enormous destocking cycle, in the developed world, in Western markets. That's been going on for the best part of a year and a half. Where we are right now, and of course that, that's been going on for the best part of the year and a half, while freight volumes have been falling below 2019 levels, despite a bigger world economy, because we've been having to whittle those inventories down. But at this point, if I look at US inventory sales ratios, they're pretty well back to normal. The destocking's pretty well done. If I look at European excess inventories, we have a, our own methodology to calculate those. We've gone from about 200 billion too much inventory in the second half of 2022 to about 50 billion at the end of June. We think it'd be probably about zero by the end of Q3. So this huge overhang of import less stuff because I've got too much of it looks to be at an end. Okay. It's funny you say this. I remember in the pandemic, we had so many boxes that would be delivered. Amazon, every store, literally, talk about homeschooling. I think I bought every child educational type product. My husband was like, I'm going to make a machine that hangs out your back window near your garage where you just can shred cardboard boxes that go right into your recycling bin because he didn't know what to do with the boxes anymore. And it was too annoying to kind of take them apart. But so we've seen this, the issues with inventory, we've seen that destocking. Now, and you don't have a crystal ball, though I would love one myself, but the next kind of, it's not a buzzword, it's sort of this overhang that people think about, a recession. We've had it. Oh, great. In logistics, we've had, I think we've had that recession. So I find it very hard to see international ocean volumes and international air volumes not growing next year, even if we get a relatively ugly macro picture, even if world GDP drops next year, I don't think we still get expansion in global trade volumes because of the extent of the undershoot driven by what is probably one of the largest inventory corrections in history. I like that. I like that. We're done. It's over. We don't need to worry about it anymore. There'll be something else to worry about. <laughs> yes. We will save that for our next discussion. This has been awesome, Alex. Thank you so much for your time and for being with us. I hope you had as much fun as I did. My pleasure. It's a great time. You've been listening to In the Know with Bernstein Research. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to like or subscribe. In the Know 
with Bernstein Research. If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at bernsteinresearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.